I know that I've said hello, but I'm going to be saying it again. All right, upstairs, turn it on, please. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again. As we continue on in our study of the New Testament, we've been working through it a chapter at a time. Um, We have done the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We did the book of Acts. And now we are beginning to uh, sort of address some of the letters, all of the letters actually, that Paul wrote. But we're going to take them in the order we believe they were written. Um, We're doing this to try and hold into some context of what's happening uh, with the missionary journeys that we had just read in the book of Acts. And so that's why we're doing it. And that's why we have moved over to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we did the first two chapters last week. We're going to do chapter 3 and 4 tonight. We'll get into chapter 5 next week. And the Second Thessalonians will either pick up the first chapter or we'll wait. But that's, those are the next two. First and second Thessalonians is what we're working on. And then uh, we'll, we'll be moving around. Okay? Because we're going to take them in the order that we believe they were written. I, I'm just hoping that in that it, it holds them in context. Now, Paul's writing the Thessalonians. Um, this letter would have been written within a couple of years of when he went there and planted the church. And we believe he was in Thessalonica at around 49 A.D., and we believe this letter was written at 51 or 52 A.D. And so not really very long since he's been there. Uh, He was kind of run out of town. And that was a power fluctuation or something here. He was kind of run out of town, and so he didn't get to really say goodbye properly. Um, And he had to move along, and he couldn't go back. And he's been wondering what's happening with the people in, in Thessalonica, what's been going on there since he left. And um, uh, he's heard some good reports, but he, he's really curious, and he eventually sends Timothy back to find out what's going on. And Timothy comes and reports it all as well. That's what we're going to read today, which makes Paul extremely happy. Because for Paul, you know, remember that um, Paul had a difficult ministry. Um, in, in doing the Lord's work, as we've talked about, what often ended up and happening to Paul was things that weren't very pleasant. And that doesn't really fit with our pattern that we talked about like over the weekend about, you know, if we do good things and good things ought to happen. And that's, there's some truth to that, but we live in a fallen world on a broken planet and, and uh, it doesn't always follow course. And with Paul, he was out doing the work of God and, you know, He'd get beaten, and he'd get flogged, and he'd get stoned to death, and he'd get shipwrecked three times, and he didn't always have food to eat, and he didn't always have clothes to wear, and he got chased out of just about every town he ever went to. (laughs) Um, And he was in prison for a long time for stuff he hadn't done. This was Paul's life. And so what Paul really found life in, we're going to see today, was, was seeing the fruit of his ministry, knowing the price that it had come at. And he could, when he saw it, it, it filled him with joy. It all made sense. So all the stuff that he was going through made sense when he, when he saw that these people whom he'd loved and, and ministered to had gotten a hold of the message and had started to live it out. See, because the, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is more than words, it's love. It's, that's at the heart of it. And they, if you get the heart of it, then the rest of it becomes part of who you are and what you do. If you get that God loves you, and that's first and foremost, and that we're supposed to love each other, then the rest of it, just the church becomes the church as it's loving well. We talk about that all the time. When the church loves well, it's the church. And it's doing the things of the church, and the church grows, and it spreads, and people come into the kingdom when the church is doing that, when it's supposed to do. 
which is love well. And that's what Paul taught these people. And we see it over and over and over again because of the response that people have for Paul. They love Paul. You know, they, they can't wait to see him again. They'll travel great distances to find him. And they love Paul. And, and Paul, you know, we, we looked in that last, in the second chapter, he was, he was a spiritual parent to them. You know, he, he talked in chapter 2 about being a father to them and in some ways being a mother to them as well. And that um, they were like spiritual kids. And so he took great pride in, 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 not in a bad way, great joy in their fruit. So that's what's happening today. We're also going to find out today as we read, and this is what we'll talk about, that even though they're doing really good, they're new Christians. And they have a lot of things yet that they still need to work out, just like we do. All right? Because no matter how long you've been walking this thing out, you've still got some work to do. And these guys had only been walking it out two or three years, excelling. I mean, what they'd been doing had already been heard about worldwide, which is impressive back in that day. But um, he, he talks about wanting to fill some of the gaps in their knowledge, because he was only with them six months, maybe. And then he had to go. And so they, they've got some deficiencies, if you would. There's some things they need to grow and mature. And they're doing well. They're new Christians and they're, they're doing well. But there's some things that they need to do uh, a little better. And they, they're in a culture, the, uh, the Gentile culture at the time was extremely um, uh, sexually permissive in their practices and had warped and morphed those into their religious practices uh, and, uh, you know, where they had um, temple prostitutes and all sorts of other things. And Paul's got to address this in them because that's the culture they're still living in and it needs to change. And so we'll see that come up as well. So let's hop into the word. First uh, Thessalonians 3, uh, we're going to read the 13 verses in verse 3 and then all of chapter 4 as well. And then we'll talk about it. There's 18 verses and 4. So here we go. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and following. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. And we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. They were there when they got run out of town. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. That's what I was talking about. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brothers... We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. 
Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and that so, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own will, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And blessed be the word of the Lord. All right, lots of stuff in two small chapters, but that's okay. Um, so the first eight verses, Paul is basically telling the people in, in Thessalonica um, that he's just got way too much going on in his own life and in his own ministry, and that even though he really wants to come... It's just not part of God's plan for him right now. And so uh, he and Silas decide that they'll send Timothy back there to the saints to see what's going on. And when Timothy comes back, as I said, he brings good news that their faith was bearing fruit in love. And, and so Paul was, as I said, filled with joy by this news because it, it made everything that he was doing begin to make sense. It, you know, it, it validated his purpose and his ministry that the, the hard work that he was doing and the sacrifice that he was making and, and really trying to be obedient to the Lord, um, it was paying off. Because, you know, I, I imagine, too, that when um, you've ever been doing something and you're pretty sure it's God, but it seems like every time you try it, it doesn't work out very well and bad things happen, and then you start wondering if it was God at all. And then it's good when a little fruit happens because you go, okay, it was God. It was just hard. And I'm sure that that's part Paul saying, you know, maybe it wasn't, maybe, maybe I missed it. You know, maybe if I'd got it right, everything would go smoothly. No. <laughs> Paul had it absolutely right. It was just difficult. Um, it's still difficult to live this thing out in a world like ours. But um, it's what we're called to. And it's temporary. This is all, this is a temporary assignment. So you, you, you hang on to it as such. Do what you're supposed to do. But uh, there's a much better assignment ahead, all right? 
It's coming. So this is te- it's good. It's temporary. And, and so for Paul, it was good to see some fruit. I mean, it made him like, okay, then it all begins to make sense. All this mess, being chased out of town and the riots and the beatings and all that stuff, it all makes sense. Um, in verses 9 through 13, um, it's important to note, though, see, Paul sees it, but, but he's also not taking personal credit for it. He's enjoying it, but he's giving the credit to God for what's happening with the Thessalonians. See, he also gets that part of it, that it's always God who does all those things. He's just a part of it. You know, he's just, he's just in there doing what God tells him to do, but it's God who's making things happen, and he's aware of that. And he thanks God for it. He's, he makes a point of thanking God for it. Um, he, and he commends the Thessalonians for their willingness to follow, but he acknowledges that it's the hand of God that's at work in their lives. And that's always it. We cooperate with what the Spirit of God is doing, but it's God who does it. And when we change... We, you know, our part is that we're cooperating, but it's God who makes changes in us that count. It's God who changes us from the inside out. And uh, those are the, the, the big fruit bearers in our lives. And uh, as I said, we also find out in these verses that they still need some guidance uh, along the way. Uh, he wanted to supply what was lacking in their faith. Uh, he was best by their, blessed by their progress as new Christians, but they still had maturing to do, as I said earlier, like all of us. And then um, we also see in those verses the importance of prayer to the Apostle Paul. Uh, it talks about him praying night and day. Um, and, that, and so he, he values time in prayer. That's why we talk so much about the importance of prayer and, and making sure we're spending time with God in prayer because it's modeled for us from Jesus on down. They all knew how important it was to be praying and connected that way to God. And also, I like the fact that when he prays for them, the Thessalonians, he prays for them to be blameless. He doesn't pray for them to be sinless. And there's a difference because one is impossible. See, to be blameless means that when we have messed up, that we deal with it the way God requires. We, we talk about that when we talk about living by doing the next right thing, right? That we are trying to do the next right thing, but sometimes we mess up. When we do, we need to go run into God, ask him for forgiveness, which he gives us, and then, uh, and then we go out and we start trying to do the next right thing again. When you're doing that process, you're blameless. You're not sinless, but you're blameless. See, because you're going and you're, you're asking God to forgive you, and he does. We're not taking advantage of it. We're not continuing to do things we shouldn't, knowing that we can always get forgiven. We're, we're really trying to do the next right thing, but sometimes we don't make it. And when we don't make it, we go and ask for forgiveness, and we get it. And then we start all over again. And that's what Paul is, is reminding them and, and talking to them and praying for them about. And the way we do that is always by living, by trying to do the next right thing. Hopefully you've heard that enough now that it's sinking in and that it's becoming a part of your day um, and day-to-day life. And then in First Thessalonians, I was supposed to say Thessalonians there, but it didn't come out. Did you hear I don't even know what it was, but it wasn't Thessalonians. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, um, the first three verses talk about the fact that it's God's will that you should be sanctified. Um, That word is the same concept of of, uh, sanctification and holiness, that we're to be holy. And we've had discussions about holiness and what holiness looks like. And that sometimes I think we we have a wrong concept um, because we have a tendency to believe 
that really the holiest people are some of the people who have sort of gotten themselves out of society and gone to live somewhere where there's no people around them and there's nothing for them to deal with and they're up on a mountaintop somewhere and oh, those are very holy people. And I'm not picking on that. I'm just saying that I believe Jesus demonstrates holiness, what real holiness looks like. And real holiness is demonstrated by loving people here in the midst of this fallen, broken world with the love of God. And that that's what holiness looks like. That's what it's all about. It's all about loving well. That's what the process of sanctification in us leads to, is that we begin to love people selflessly the way that God does, the way that Jesus demonstrated. And we're dealing with our own selfishness in the process. And that that's the, the process that we're undergoing and that we live through. And it's, it's really about learning to love us. It's all about that. Um, you know, loving well, loving the way God wants us to, uh, seeing people the way he does and loving them and less of our own selfish mess over time in the mix. And so, um, so this is what we're being called to. Now, in order to do that, he begins to point out some of the things that we talked about. Verses 4 through 8 of chapter 4, uh, he says that sexual immorality is to be avoided. Now, remember, their culture was a very pagan environment. And sexual looseness was not only practiced openly, but it was also encouraged in many of their sort of um, pagan religious kind of ideas. And as believers, they were no longer to live like this, not only for their own sakes, and here's what's important, um, it was so that they, they didn't engage other people in sin, too, in trying to fulfill out their own lust. They didn't take other people down with them or harm other people or take advantage of other people. See, sex outside of the context of the will of God is a selfish act. And that's the bottom line. And that's what Paul's trying to tell them. Outside of the context of the will of God, that kind of behavior is always selfish. It's not about other people. And it, it, it goes against what the love of God looks like and how we're supposed to treat others. And that's why he's saying you can't live like that any longer. And, and yet they're, continue, they're, they're encouraged, though, in verses 9 through 12, to develop the practice of brotherly love um, that they'd already been practicing, but, but they, were to, they were to work on it, you know, Paul says, more and more, just like we all are. We're supposed to be continuing to develop this type of love. This love that God gives us for others needs to be developed in our lives. And he gives them some ideas on how to do that, which I kind of get a kick out of. Um, they were to lead peaceful lives which is a good, good thought, don't you think? They were to lead productive lives, and they were to keep their noses out of other people's business. I think that's great. There's a proverb that says, it's a proverb from the Bible, Proverb 25, 17. It's not your notes. You can look it up in your, neighbor, in, in your uh, Bibles later, 25, 17. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you, and he will hate you. Paul's saying, look, you know, the, the best witness you can have, love people well, love others well. Um, but, you know, you're supposed to lead peaceful lives, not getting in, you know, craziness. And, and you're supposed to be productive. You know, they talk about working with their hands, which is a noble thing. Um, uh, and, you know, the Jewish culture valued working with hands they, as, a, as a God thing. The Greek culture didn't. They didn't like manual labor. And so, but, and so the Gentiles would pick some of that up. And he's saying, look, you need to work with your hands. And, um, you know, mind your own business and just look for what God's doing, not 
not trying to get in the way. And that type of lifestyle, Paul says, would have an impact on people outside the kingdom of God. And we talked all about that in, we called that radical living. So he encourages them to do that as well. And then the last part of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, um, is another area they need some guidance and is a pretty big deal. And this, these passages are the biblical passages about what's commonly referred to as the rapture of the church. If you've been in the church for long, you've heard about the idea of the rapture. Now, the word rapture isn't in that text. Um, the, the words that are in that text are caught up, um, being caught up. And um, that's where the concept comes from. Um, because as you read that, the, the believers that are here, when Jesus comes, are caught up to him in the air. And so the, the word that they've they used for that, to describe that as rapture. But if somebody says, well, rapture is not in the Bible, they're correct. The word rapture is not. But the concept is certainly there. And um, there's a lot of different ideas about the rapture in the body of Christ and when it takes place. And some people believe it takes place, and there's this seven-year little period of things that believe people believe happen. And so some people believe that the rapture happens before that seven-year period. Some people believe the rapture happens right in the middle of it. And some people believe it happens at the end of the seven-year period. Um, all three positions are pretty well defendable in the Bible, depending on how you look at it. Um, and people try and pin me down sometimes, and they get mad at me. I have a belief, but it's, to me it's not one of the bigger issues. Um, I just want to get people to Jesus. I used to tell people, see, so, so when I have that kind of stuff, I tell people stuff like, well, I think you get to go when you believe you get to go. <laughs> pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. Where would you rather go? Well, if that's the case, then I'm a pre-tribber. Well, there you go. <laughs> you want to stay for three and a half years of that mess? Knock yourself out. Seven? Go for it. <laughs> if he invites me out early, I'm gone. So... Uh, but some people are real serious about that, and that's fine. It's all good. I've studied it all, looked at all the different things, read the scriptures, and have friends that believe multiples of ways, and, and it's all fine with me. Um, I just want Jesus to come back. So if he comes and takes out the church in the beginning, cool. If it's three and a half years, cool. If it's the end, okay. It's, but he's coming. You know, I'm just happy he's coming. So I'm okay. Anyway. So uh, he's addressing this whole concept of the Thessalonians. You know, they're new, and this is a big deal to them. The whole, you know, the whole resurrection thing, all that's news to them, right? They, woof, big deal with Jesus. And so um, uh, he talks about those who fall asleep. That's a New Testament description of people that die. Um, it's not a sleep of the soul because uh, Paul talks in places that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5.8 says just that. We're confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Um, the, the, the sleep referred to there is a, a sleep of the body until it's resurrected and changed into a glorious body, um, which is what we have coming, which is also really good news. Because um, I was pretty happy with this one 25 years ago. <laughs> it's got some stuff with, wrong with it now. So you get a new one, which is cool. Now, a lot of people go, well, how do, you know, what about, you know, they have all these questions, well, what about these, you know, how does he do that? And because and people get all concerned about, you know, um, 
you know, it, it all goes back to dust and ash eventually. Anyway, bones, how do you get buried, cremation? What about people that have burned up and all these things and lost at sea and everything? All I can tell you is the Creator God can deal with it. He made it the body in the first place. He can give you a new one when the time comes, so I don't worry about that stuff. Again, I don't think it's main, main stuff. Um, but what Paul says is that because Jesus came and he went to the cross and he was resurrected, we can count on him to take care of this situation as well. And those ideas are, are some of the best attested facts of history. Um, that, that Jesus came, that he went to the cross, and that he defeated death are not just, it's not a myth. We have lots of witnesses and lots of proof and all sorts of things happening. And so because of that, and it just happened in his time, we can be equally certain that the, the souls of the believers that have died will return with Christ, and then when he comes, he comes to get us. Now, um, the logical outcome, it says, of that is, is, is comfort and encouragement. Knowing that Jesus is coming back is good news, right? It should be very encouraging, especially when you had a bad day. Because some days Jesus coming back sounds a lot better than other days. I mean, it always sounds good, but some days it's like, okay, night, right, right now would be cool. But see, it, I'll make this point, and, and it settles into where how I believe it's supposed to happen. But the the Israelites celebrated feasts throughout the year, seven of them that they were called to every year, and um, God arranged these feasts with certain things in them. Um, and he did it so that when Jesus actually came, the people for generations who had been celebrating these feasts were supposed to be able to point him out because he's in the midst of them. And so those feasts, it starts with Passover. And we know that this is when, when Jesus, you know, he did the Last Supper and he was going to the cross and all that happened on Passover. And then the, the very next day is first fruits. And then the third day is, uh, I know, unleavened bread is the next day and then first fruits. That these three things happen over that three-day period, and they happen right as Jesus fulfilled them prophetically. All right? Passover, and all that means, you know, the, the lamb, the blood on the doorpost, the, the, the bread, he's the bread of life. And then he, the first fruits is the very first little offering of the season happens, and Jesus is the first fruits, the first one to be resurrected. There was a little tiny group of people. Remember in Matthew it says it popped out of the tombs. That's the first little harvest that happened. And then 50 days after that, there's another uh, feast called Pentecost. And that one was fulfilled 50 days later, and the Holy Spirit came. And that's the next harvest. It's not the biggest harvest, but it's the next harvest that the Israelites are celebrating with their feast. And the Holy Spirit perfectly fulfills that one when he comes. Okay. So four of the seven feasts have been fulfilled. Three left. Okay. Um, and, and those three are the trumpets, tabernacles, and the other one. But... but, but uh, the next one to be fulfilled that's coming, hasn't been fulfilled yet, is trumpets. And at trumpet sound, and we know that scripturally, that signifies the end of the harvest. And those who can hear the trumpet respond, and the Bible talks about, you know, the trumpet sounds, and the people that worship God leave, and the rest of them keep working in the fields. But at trumpet sound, it signifies the end of the harvest. Well, in that verse of scripture, you know what it says we're waiting for? Trumpet. What's happening? Jesus is coming back, the harvest is over, and he's coming for us then. Um... That's what I believe happens. And then we have those other two feasts that have to be fulfilled in a, in a period of time. And, and so um, I, I tend to believe that we're just waiting on trumpet sound. And that's what we're looking at. And if you love Jesus, you'll hear it. And you'll be hanging around. Scripturally, you'll hear the trumpets. 
and the dead people will be rising up. And you'll be like, wow. And instantaneously after that, you catch up with them. Now, that's going to be cool. And you go, oh, no, that's happening, guys. That's, that's happening. You get to be a part of that. It's coming. You don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. And that's good news, and that's supposed to encourage us, and that's what this whole part of the letter was about. He's encouraging them. Listen, because he's saying, we, we appreciate your endurance. They're, they're catching a lot of flack. He said, we caught it too. Now you're catching it. But you know what? It's all going to be worth it because this is what's coming. So just hang in there. And Paul thought it was going to happen in his lifetime. But we're still waiting 2,000 years. Why? It's a big harvest. But prophetically, it makes sense, doesn't it? We're supposed to be, Jesus said things like, you're going to get out there and harvest, go, get, harvest, harvest, harvest. Bringing people in, bringing people in. That's what's going on. First fruits, little tiny harvest, Jesus and about 500. Then, then Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved, plus, boom, bigger harvest. This next one is the big end of the summer harvest. That's where we're waiting on a trumpet sound. That's what's in the book. That's where we'll stop. If you're watching my video, thanks for watching. If there's anything we can do for your call, us, write us, email us. We'll do whatever we can. We're going to close here with prayer. Pass up your prayer request to me, please, and we'll take it from there, and you can shut up.